Hebrews chapter 1. A particular focus is going to be on verse 6 and onwards, but for the sake of context, we'll begin in verse 1. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Lord, I'm dependent on the Holy Spirit, and we are equally dependent on the Holy Spirit to open up your truth to us. We are blind to the truth without the Holy Spirit giving us new eyes. We don't see things clearly unless the Holy Spirit makes the Word of God clear to us. So help us, aid us in this. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, it's happened. Uh, The pastor has finally brought a Bible to church. It's an answer to prayer, I'm sure. Yep, the pastor's brought a Bible. I did, because normally I don't. I don't normally bring a Bible to church. You might think, well, I've seen you with one. Well, what you've seen is a translation of the Bible, a Bible translation. For today, I brought a Bible to church, and um, it's in uh, two different languages. In fact, uh, the original... Our Bibles were written in three languages, Hebrew mostly in the Old Testament. There's a little section or two in the book of Daniel that's in Aramaic, but the vast majority is Hebrew. Greek 
in the New Testament. And so this is a book that starts opposite to most books I have because it starts at the back because that's the way Hebrew reads. And so Genesis is right at the end of the book. And you start there and start reading chapter 1 and you've got to go the wrong way. It's a mental thing to, to go the wrong way to chapter 2. And you go all the way through to the end of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And then for the New Testament, you start at the beginning because that's the way Greek reads. And you start with Matthew in the Greek. If you're interested, you can come see a Bible. Some of you have never seen a Bible. You've been a Christian a long time and haven't seen a Bible. But we bring our translations with us, and I believe we have many good translations. So I brought a Bible. Now, in the field of translation, certain decisions have to be made. Uh, For my sins, growing up in England, I learned German in high school. Did five years of German, most of which, 98% of it is all forgotten, because I don't use German much. In England, you either learn French or German. Here, it's not the case. But in learning German, there are certain words you come across and you think, whoa, that's different. That doesn't sound anything like English. Take the word in English, gloves, or glove. In German, it's the word handschuhe. And that does not sound like glove. And when you think about it, the mentality is this. Just as you have shoes for your feet, you also have shoes for your hand. And that's the thinking. And so the German word for gloves is Handschuhe. Can we say that out loud together? Handschuhe. See, you know some German. There it is. Now when you translate that, say you've got a sentence and you're translating that from German into English, what do you do? You have a choice to make because you can take a wooden direct translation of the word Handschuhe and say, you know what? I left my hand shoes in your car. Can you check out and see if that's the case? And that would be a sentence. Or you could say, you know, they won't understand if I talk that way. I better use the word gloves because they probably have an understanding of what that means rather than looking around their car for some kind of hand shoes. That would be very, very different. But you see, that's the choice you make. And so you have a wooden translation, a direct translation, which would be Hand shoes. Can you check your car to see if I left my hand shoes there? That would be a direct translation. But most people would never understand it, and so it's better for the translators to think, how will this be understood? Let's talk about gloves. You know, can you check your car out? I think I left my gloves there. That is when communication takes place to the audience you're writing to. And so in the realm of our English translations, there are those that are more literal, sometimes a little bit more wooden, but they're seeking to be very, very accurate concerning what the original Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek was, and they're seeking to translate those words into English. And so if you were coming across, I don't think you do, but would you come across that little phrase in uh, the Hebrew or the Greek, they would probably try to say hand shoes. And others would say, gloves. Now, neither of which are wrong. But the issue is, what are you trying to communicate? Who are you trying to communicate it to? What is your audience? And so I would say, if if I listed the top English Bibles, my opinion, uh, my understanding would be the top English Bibles that are word-for-word translations are the Legacy Standard Bible, 
the NET, NET Bible, the New American Standard Bible, and the one we use most often is the ESV, the English Standard Version. Excellent accuracy in translation. More of a thought for thought that would probably use the word gloves is the NIV, uh, the nearly infallible version, and excuse me, um, the new international version. And by far, it is the most popular Bible translation in the English language. I'm told around 55% of the market is owned by the NIV. People buying NIVs all the time. And the next insignificance, second, is so low down, it's not even worth talking about in terms of percentage. 55% is, is quite amazing. And what's my view of it? I think it's a very good translation, understanding you're more likely to come across the word gloves rather than hand shoes. So I'm hopefully conveying that to you. As for my own opinion, when I start in my study, when I start in my Bible reading, I want to start with what is the most accurate translation. And so that's why I use the ESV and NASB and the others I've mentioned. Um, so there's not bad translations out there, but you need to understand what you're looking at. I would rather have the accuracy of the wooden translation, the direct translation, and leave it to me to interpret it, rather than a translation committee making up ideas and saying this won't communicate like that, we're going to change it to make it more understandable. There's nothing wrong with that, understand their heart, they're not bad people at all, they're just seeking to communicate. And when you're seeking to communicate, that's a right communication skill. I think it'd be right to say I left my gloves in the car if you're speaking to 21st century America. So, oh, I want you to be against something. I'm actually not against anything. I just want you to understand what you're looking at. So there's two possibilities when it comes to translation, a literal, wooden, technically accurate translation, shoes for the hand, or gloves, which is a more thought-for-thought thought translation. And translation committees make all those kind of decisions. Um, in communicating that, there's a reason for it. When in the first century in Palestine and uh, the, the area of the Middle East we know as the, the promised land out there, most people, some did, but most would not know Hebrew. Many would, but when, we're not absolutely sure how much Hebrew was in vogue at that time. And so even if there was a high percentage or a low percentage, there was a certain sector of the population that wouldn't understand it. And so a translation was made, in fact a couple of centuries before the time of Christ, maybe a, a, a hundred years before, where Greek was the language of the people. Uh, Alexander the Great had conquered the known world and had made everybody learn Greek. And that was really the providence of God. So when the Gospels went out in Greek, most could understand it. Isn't that a coincidence? Not at all. So God used even the evil desires of emperors to achieve his will. So that something could be written in Israel and understood where we have Spain today. And so it was through the Roman Empire. But about 100 years, maybe 200 years before the time of Christ, something was uh, translated, the Hebrew, into the Greek of the people, and it's known as the Septuagint. The Septuagint. In fact, I, I brought mine uh, with me today. It's uh, actually a, an English translation 
of uh, the Septuagint, and uh, you may not have seen one of these, but it's interesting. Uh, a little, reads a little bit different in certain aspects, but it's a Greek translation now, obviously the one I have is in English, of the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's a bit like what you have in your hands when you come to church. You don't bring the original Hebrew or Greek unless you're very uh, uh, well-educated. You don't normally bring that to church. You bring a translation. And this was, now hear this, the basic translation that the apostles and certainly the writer of Hebrews used. And so all of this is relevant when we come to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 6, because there we read, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And it's a quotation from the Old Testament, except when you go back in your Bible, you don't actually find that as the translation. Uh, found in Deuteronomy 32 and in Psalm 97 and verse 7, what you have before you is a quotation from the Septuagint. It, it's not found in the Masoretic text, which is a, a big word, but it is the text that has been uh, endorsed by the rabbis as the official Hebrew text. What we have here is the Septuagint from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. And you think, uh, huh, you're bamboozling us already. Look, I'm not the cause of the problem here. Um, I'm just explaining it, and um, I think we'll, we'll see that. So what we have in view from uh, this early part of Hebrews is the writer is quoting seven Old Testament passages, and it's written to those who were very familiar with the Old Testament, and they viewed it as authoritative. And so to establish who Jesus is, the writer is quoting verse after verse after verse from the Old Covenant. And it's describing the exaltation of Christ, his supremacy, especially in this regard, as superior to the angels. Two of those quotations were found in verse 5, and we discussed that the last time we were here in Hebrews. But in verse 6, we have to ask the question, what's going on here? And I believe it's referring to Christ's second coming. In verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. Firstborn, we talked about that. It's a title of dignity. It's not referring to the time dimension normally uh, in view with firstborn. In fact, in the Old Testament, we see that often. That Not often, but on occasions. That the firstborn, the, the right of firstborn, was not always 100% given to the one who was born first. You'd think that's the way it would be. But it's a title of dignity and of rule. And uh, David is called, uh, da David certainly has the reference to it. We talked about it all last time, if you want to check that out, regarding what firstborn means. It speaks of dignity, uh, in this case majesty. He's the one who is the firstborn, has all the rights of sonship. That's what's going on here. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, I think the word again, most scholars would say this, refers to the second coming of Christ, where God declares everybody, all angels, worship him. You might find all of this a little bit bothersome. You think, uh, why, why don't they go to the Hebrew? Well, again, if you're thinking 
the guy might not have access to the Hebrew or else he was familiar, like we would be with the NIV. He's just quoting what he knows and what he knows would be understood by his audience. And so he's quoting not the Hebrew, the Masoretic text, but what we call the Septuagint. All of this I find very, very interesting. You might not, but it is interesting to some. And uh, if you don't know the original Hebrew or Greek, thank the Lord for translators. Uh, Thank the Lord that you and I have translations in our hand. One of the ministries we support as a church is the Wycliffe Foundation that seeks to translate the Bible into languages that haven't had the Bible in their mother tongue before. And that's an important task. The Reformation was a back-to-the-Bible movement. And if you don't have the Bible in the language of the people, you're not going to have a Reformation. It's when Luther not only understood the Gospel, but spent time translating the Bible into German that they could have a Reformation. People could read the Bible for themselves and compare it to the traditions of men that were being taught by the church. So almost all of the quotations we have in the book of Hebrews quoting the Old Testament come from the Septuagint. And I think I've established that. So when he again brings the first one into the world, the question we have to ask is when? When does this happen? Uh, A number of events could be established as it being possible. The time of the, the birth of Christ, the baptism of Christ. Do you remember God declared, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased? But in all likelihood, it's a reference to the future, the second coming of Christ. And again, I don't think this is out of its setting in terms of the thrust of Hebrews. Hebrews is always taking us forward. The thrust is forward rather than backward. There's nothing to go back to. Christ is established as, first of all, the heir of all things. Do you remember that in verse 2? He's appointed the heir of all things. So it begins in the future. Jesus is going to inherit everything, and he's also the creator through whom also he made, he created the world. So I don't think it's out of place for the writer to then talk about the firstborn coming into the world in terms of his dignity, his majesty, at his second coming. So that's the when question. The what question is this. What is this verse communicating? Here it is. Are you ready? All angels are ordered by God to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That's huge. That's huge in many ways, but one of the main reasons for it being massive and huge and Uh, just this monster statement, is the fact that to worship someone less than God is blasphemous, idolatrous. In fact, it's damnable to the soul to worship that which is less than God. And get this, it's God the Father ordering all angels to worship Christ. So it would be bad for an angel to do it. But think how much of a monstrous thing it would be for God to do this if Jesus wasn't God himself. This is huge. This is massive. You see, God the Father would therefore be complicit in the sin of unspeakable, unspeakable blasphemy and idolatry if he said angels worship Jesus and Jesus be less than God. Only God is legitimately to be worshipped. This is proof 
This is amazing proof that Jesus is higher than all the angels because God the Father orders all the angels to worship him. Angels are commanded, and that's the point being made. Keep your place in Hebrews. Turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 22, the end of our Bibles. Revelation 22. John has received this amazing revelation and writes of it in verse 8. I, John, Revelation 22, 8, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, look at this, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. He was so in awe of this angel. You might think, well, John knows better. He's been around Christ for years. He he knows better. No, the sight that he saw physically was so awe-inspiring. It just seemed the natural thing to fall on his face before this angel and worship. And the angel had to put a stop to it. Look at this. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the worship, excuse me, the words of this book, worship God. You see, the angel being a true angel would not receive uh, worship and not only discouraged it, but stopped it. Worship God. Only God is worthy of worship. Not even the most eminent angel is. And he described himself as a fellow servant of God. I'm like you, he says, I'm a fellow servant. So John was so in awe of the angel, he was inclined to worship, but the angel says, don't do that. Worship is reserved only for God. So, let's turn to verse 7. Quite an explanation. Verse 7, of the angels, this is Hebrews 1 verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds or spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. And this is a quotation from Psalm 104, verse 4. Let's go back there. Psalm 104, verse 4. And there's not much uh, in the way of explanation needed in this particular verse. Starting in verse 3, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He, talking of God, makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flame of fire. So this is establishing the fact that angels are servants. Again, the whole thrust of the passage is to show the supremacy of Jesus to all angels. I would say, including in this, uh, is the understanding that no mere man, no prophet, no apostle, no intermediary ever should be worshipped and Jesus is above them. And so it's not just angels that are in view, but anyone other than God himself. The Hebrew word for wind here is a familiar one, ruach in Hebrew, and it means uh, three things. Wind, it means spirit, and it means breath. And it's the context that tells us which of those is being utilized. In Genesis 1, it was the Ruach of God that was hovering over the face of the waters. We understand that to be the Holy Spirit rather than holy um, wind or holy breath. It's context that tells us how a word is to be understood. But let's not miss the point of verse 6. What's been established is 
angels are servants of the Most High and God is over them and God tells them what to do and they are about his bidding. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. They're on course only, they operate only to do the will of God. These are the elect angels. Moving on to verse 8. But, now here's the contrast. He's spoken about angels. He's talked about that. He's written about them anyway. But of the Son, in contrast, he says this. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Verse 8. Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Literally, for the age of the age. As eternity could be wrapped up in a sentence. That's what is in view. Age to age to age to age. He is on the throne. His throne is forever. Don't want you to miss the other glaring thing in verse 8. Here, the Son is identified as God. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. In our confession and as Christians, generally we affirm the Trinity, one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Where is it that we find a verse that speaks of God the Son? Well, here's one of many. Here's the Son addressed as God. All we're doing is saying God the Son when we affirm the elements of the Trinity. The Son is here addressed as God on the throne forever and ever. I'd love to just camp out there and understand this. If you understand just the first eight verses of Hebrews, you'll never be attracted to any cult, any Christian cult that would deny the divinity of Christ Jesus is the creator of all things. He's the heir of all things, and he is God himself. His scepter is a scepter of uprightness. He rules. That's what someone who is a king does. He has a scepter of uprightness, and that's the scepter of his kingdom. Everything Jesus does is good. Everything he does is right. Everything he does is holy. And then verse 9 describes the character of this one. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness or iniquity. Let me say this. If you truly love something or someone, you actually hate that which is in opposition to it. If you love your wife, you would hate the idea of someone coming to harm her. If you love children, you would hate all that would oppose children. You would hate child sacrifice, for example. You would hate child molestation. You'd hate it. You would hate child abuse. And you would hate abortion. The most afflicted, the most downtrodden, the most oppressed in our society are the unborn. 
They are children without a voice. Perhaps you've never considered that. Far more important, I think, than even the quandary of those who uh, sleep the streets and yet they have food. In the case of abortion, you literally have parents paying money to have their children brutally murdered. Think about that. What a blight on our land. Tuesday is a vote. I could never vote for any, I repeat, any political candidate that supports abortion. I cannot do it. I don't care how much money they put in my pocket. I don't care how much of a life of ease they might promise me. I cannot do it. If you love children, you'll hate that which is opposed to children. Verse 9. Two persons are in view, each of whom is called God. And there's no way around it. I've seen some kind of the Ali shuffle. I've seen people try to do a whole lot of things uh, in the cults to try and get away from this. But, all right, once the the dust settles, you're still left with two persons here, both of whom are called God. There's no way around it. Let's go to Psalm 45. Keep your finger in the book of uh, Hebrews. Psalm 45. And I simply want to quote what is being quoted in Hebrews. Look at verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Now notice that. Therefore, God. Someone is being addressed as God. And yet, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And this speaks to the event in time when the Lord Jesus, though God, truly God, was also truly man, and looked to his Father as God, being God himself. So he's God, and yet could pray to God. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your comparisons. The word God there in Hebrew is Elohim, normally translated as God, depending on the context once again. And so we have in view in Psalm 45 the king who's anointed and yet is addressed as God. Hear that again. The king is anointed and yet he's addressed as God. And it's God... Who anoints the king? There are two people in view. That's a stunning revelation. Two persons, distinct persons, each of whom is called God. You have the king ruling with the righteous scepter, and you have God who anoints him. But this anointing, which speaks of the favor of God, the hand of God upon the man, this anointing came by means of a qualification. Look at that as we go back to the book of Hebrews. 
You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. What's the next word? Therefore. On the basis of your love for righteousness and your hatred of wickedness, if you love righteousness, you'll hate sin. If you love good, you'll hate evil. If you love your wife, you'll hate that which would come against your wife. So it is. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, in other words, on that basis, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your comparisons. Jesus not only inherits all things because of who he is, but because of his attitude, because of his heart, because of what he did. And because of his commitment to the cause of righteousness, God anoints him. With what? The oil of gladness, the oil of joy above your companions. So, in the context of Christ loving righteousness, which is the essence of the holy life, he loves that which is right. He loves that which is set apart to God. He loves that and hates that which would mar that, that would come against that. I would say the most holy person on earth was the Lord Jesus. He is the Holy One of Israel. And because he's holy, guess what? He's also joyful. I want to ask you today, is that your picture of holiness? So often in our concepts of holiness, you think if you're going to be a holy person, you're not going to have any fun in life. You're not going to be joyous. You want to be dour. I, I, I remember one of the, the, the descriptions and... Um, the films that came out, I think in the 70s, was Jesus of Nazareth. He looked dour. He, he, he looked like he would never laugh. He, would, he was just so serious. And you get around Jesus, and the Bible says about him, he had more joy than anybody around him. Why? Because God anointed him because he loved righteousness. Don't buy into the idea to have the great life, you can't be holy. It's the exact opposite. Fun? You want to have fun? Be holy. Do you know you don't have to sleep at night trying to get to sleep at night? You know what I mean by that? If you live a holy life. If you, if you actually are righteous and do the right thing, you're not worried about who might find out stuff. Moving right along. I, I think I need to preach to a different crowd. Right? No, I mean, if, you, if you're telling people what is right and you're doing what is right, you can go to sleep with a good conscience. Instead, because we're not that, we're taking all kinds of tranquilizers to get ourselves to sleep at night, to couch that which is going on in the heart and in the mind. You know, Jesus had joy and fell asleep. He could do it when it didn't look like you could, like shipwrecks and boats going down. He's sleeping. That's supernatural. He's at peace. They have to wake him. Don't you care that we're perishing? Uh, Sorry, what? He, he, he's sleeping supernaturally. He was a joyful person. The common people heard him gladly, the Bible says. And yet, there's the balance. There was no fire and brimstone preacher more than Jesus. It's Jesus who tells us about hell more than anyone else in our Bibles. More than anyone else. What is a hell and fire brimstone preacher? A Bible preacher. That's a quote from Steve Lawson. Amen. 
Someone came to the house, a workman, and they heard I was a pastor. They said, I hope you're not a fire and brimstone pastor preacher. I said, well, when I find it in the text, uh, I'll preach it. And that was kind of the end of the conversation. (laughs) Joy. Do you have joy in your life? I submit to you, love righteousness, and there'll be an element of joy. The Bible says this, Romans 14, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. I'm glad of that because some would have more kingdom than others. Think about it. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God's about. Heaven's going to be a joyful place. You're not going to be, I don't think you have watches there, but you're not going to be looking at your watch and think, how long is this service going on? We've been worshipping Jesus for seven straight days. Yeah, I, I know, we missed the Super Bowl last week. You know, that people are not concerned about trivialities. They're seeing Jesus and are enraptured. The Bible speaks, Jesus said, when there is that day of reward, enter into the joy of your master. The joy. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's why oftentimes we're weak. We're not enjoying our Christian life. Think of Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. There's that nine-list formula for the fruit of the Spirit. Love, what's the second one? Joy. Peace. Different word order there. But joy. The fruit of the Spirit is sadness and gloom. Show me that in your Bible. Spurgeon was criticized. I quote him a lot. He's worthy of quotation, but he was funny. Uh, Really funny. One lady came up to him and was offended at his humor, and he said, Lady, you have no idea what I left out. (laughs) Sometimes we don't get it. I remember at seminary, an instructor who knew Hebrew very well and was immersed in it, came and because we're Gentiles, we miss the humor of Jesus. And I was all ears. I thought, tell me. He said, in the first century, just as you have jokes today, you know, it's really kind of sad when blondes and Polish people kind of get the brunt of jokes. I know you're looking at me like, I've never heard. Yes, you do. You know about blonde jokes and Polish jokes. In the first century, guess who was the brunt of the brunt, got the brunt of the jokes. Shepherds. In fact, in that society, two classes of people weren't allowed to, to um, officiate in a court. One was women. Two were shepherds. Now Jesus changed all that. God's got a sense of humor. The first people to recognize Jesus as born were shepherds. Take that. The first people to witness the resurrection were women. Take that. But in the first century, shepherds got the brunt of the stories. So imagine Jesus goes up on a mountain, thousands there, and he starts off like this. Hey, guys, there was a shepherd. Oh, it's a shepherd story. Awesome, Jesus. Shepherd story. Okay. Hmm. There was a shepherd, he had a hundred sheep. Oh yeah, oh yeah, go on. And uh, well, uh, one of them went astray and uh, 
what the shepherd did, get this, what the shepherd did was he left the 99 to go after the one. And they say, that's awesome, Jesus. That's crazy. That's hilarious. What a stupid shepherd leaves the 99 to go for the one. And Jesus turns around and says, and God's like that. Wow, that's like an anesthetic before the surgery. He turned around. We miss all that because we're Gentiles. We don't understand. Jesus was fun to listen to. I'm in the Reformed world with everything in me, but we we need to lighten up. We need to have fun. I mean, be serious and fun. The Bible says rejoice with trembling. There's a balance. None of this is in my notes. You might have guessed. I'm looking down and there's nothing that is here that's coming out of here. Now in my charismatic days, you know what I'd say? say, Somebody needed to hear that. (laughs) I don't know that's true. But I do want to say this. Our view of holiness is important. And if you pursue it, you will be a joyful person. Jesus was the most holy and the most joyful. Amen. Look at verse 9. You've loved righteousness, hated wickedness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I'm looking at the text here and thinking, I'm going to leave some for next time. But I want us to understand this. Jesus is worshipped. Never is that discouraged in even the Gospels. Quite the opposite. Jesus, now this is huge. If you've come out of a cult, you'll appreciate this. If you've been in the Jehovah Witnesses or some cult, you'll understand this is amazing. Jesus received and welcomed worship. It's one of the many evidences of his deity. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, saw the Lord, Yahweh, on the throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple and the angels of God said, holy, holy, holy. What is remarkable is when John refers to that incident as when Isaiah saw his glory, he speaks and says, that was Jesus. What Isaiah saw, who Isaiah saw was the Lord on his throne. You check it out, John 12, 41 John says this, writes this, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. That's Jesus. Isn't that amazing? John saw the one on the throne, saw his glory, and it's the one we now know as Jesus of Nazareth. On earth, Jesus received worship. Matthew 2, 11, the Magi, it says... In seeing the newborn Jesus, it says, fell down and worshipped him. After walking on the water, Matthew 14, verse 33, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. After the resurrection, Matthew 28, verse 9, we read this, and behold, Jesus met them and said greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. At the Ascension, Gospel of Luke 24, verse 52, hear these words, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. 
John chapter 9. A man born blind received the miracle of sight and now seeing, verse 38, John 9, 38, he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus was worshipped while on earth and never, ever was this discouraged. Nothing ever suggests that this was inappropriate or illegitimate. Knowing this, you could try that in Washington State or Idaho or Hawaii or Belgium or name the country, but in first century Israel, worshipping anything less than God, death penalty stuff right there. No hint of it. Nothing wrong. Only God is to be worshipped. Everyone knew it, and they worshipped him. See, the worship of any creature is strictly forbidden. In fact, it's damnable, damnable idolatry. And yet Jesus didn't reprimand them. Remember after Jesus appeared to Thomas, Thomas said, my Lord and my God, John chapter 20. Jesus didn't rebuke him and say, oh, you're going a little too far, Thomas. No, he says, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You and I understand as we walk through Hebrews, we can't miss this fact. Jesus is God. We'll see more of that next time. It's amazing what we'll see. But this so far, angels, all of you angels, you see him? Worship him. That was in any way illegitimate. The father would be sinning in saying that and commanding that. How do we wrap this up? We need to understand who Jesus is. And when we do, we'll never put him on the same level as any guru, any prophet. Jesus was a prophet, but he's certainly more than that. Any teacher, Jesus was a teacher, but he's more than that. Any rabbi, Jesus was a rabbi, but he's more than that. He's God in the flesh. He's the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word, finish it for me, was God. That's who Jesus is. This triune God had a plan from all eternity. Knowing that man would rebel, knowing that man would sin. His love, the creation, and for man, what is man that you would be mindful of him or even think of it? It's amazing that God would love this world in this way by sending his son into the world, being born of a virgin, living a flawless, perfect, unblemished life before his father, keeping the entire law of God, then going to the cross for the glory of God and for the salvation of sinners. There on the cross, the Bible says the Lord, that's the Father, laid on him the iniquity of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to, the, to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53. There on the cross, he absorbed the anger of God due to us as sin was laid on him, unblemished and holy as he was. And he died in our place, was punished for us Three days later, after his burial, he rose again and was declared to be the Son of God with power, Romans 1 verse 4 says. 
God attesting to the fact, this is my son again. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I raise him from the dead. And now he's at a place of all authority. Have you come to him? Have you understood who he is? And on his terms, come to him saying, Lord, I'm sorry for going my own way, doing my own thing. I now come under your rule. I repent of doing my own thing and I believe in you as the Savior, the Son of God. John writes, I've written these things to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Have you come to him? And Christian, where are you in relationship to him? Put off sin, say no, say yes to righteousness because the love of God for holiness rises up in your heart and you want to do the right thing. Turn from what you know to be wrong and come under his rule, his righteous scepter. It's a holy rule. Let's come under it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, high and lifted up, train of his robe filling the temple, speaks of his absolute majesty. We bow before him, knowing that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to respond. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.